Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. In this episode, I'm chatting with Dave Rastovich, who is a global sport activist for Patagonia. So Dave sheds light on the impact of this rollback on Australia's marine ecosystems, also how he got here. He's literally dedicated his life to protecting oceans, not only in Australia, but also around the planet. You might have heard or seen him before in The Cove, which was an Oscar award-winning documentary about whaling and dolphins in Japan. Now, I don't want to spoil it all, so let's just get into the episode. Thanks so much for joining me today, Dave. I'm so excited to chat. But first of all, to kick things off, I wanted to find out a little bit more about your journey from being a renowned surfer to now a global sport activist and an advocate for ocean conservation. How did you get here? How did I get here? Well, I would have to acknowledge my family, my mother and father who raised my two sisters and myself in Aotearoa in New Zealand in the beginning of this life. And some of the experiences there that I had before we were in Australia when we moved across the ditch here to Australia when I was six have really formed uh, my foundations for the rest of my life in ways that are just still revealing themselves right now. So I was just writing about this actually that some of my earliest memories in New Zealand are of being in a veggie patch, being on a small sort of, I guess, a little farmlet, a tiny little farm and growing our food, taking it to the local farmer's market and people selling their produce of all shapes and sizes and colours off the back of their utes and trade happening, not always money being exchanged. And then going to the beaches there I recall these glimpses of memories of seeing people collecting mussels and fish and sustenance from the ocean there in New Zealand where I later learned where I was seeing people doing that was near New Zealand's first marine reserve of Goat Island on the northeast of the North Island. And then we moved to suburban Australia. We moved to the Gold Coast like a lot of Kiwis do and uh, my life with the ocean began in earnest really because we're in suburbia I didn't really I guess I didn't enjoy that sort of space and the busyness and everything after coming from rural New Zealand and so I really took to the ocean and surfing and surf life saving and and then went into a a surfing career that wasn't competitive I, I was fortunate enough to be a sponsored surfer that just I guess made documentaries uh, had adventures, did exploration, worked with surf communities around the world, and and that was enough to feed me and put a roof over my head. At that time, I was sponsored by Billabong and a few other surfing companies. And over that 
course of my 20s and 30s, just through the cyclical nature of being a traveling surfer where you, you visit places every year, you return to similar regions for the winter season or the summer season, whatever it may be. And I really quickly noticed that when I was returning to places that I really began to love and I had friends within those places, I was seeing that life was becoming harder in a lot of those places. It was harder to catch your fish, to catch your food for your family. People would have to travel further and return home with less. I also felt it in my bones, in my body when I surfed in polluted places and got ear, nose and throat infections in places like Southern California, in Europe, in Japan, in Bali, here in Australia, sometimes in the Sydney region. And those were experiences that were really hard to forget. You know, when you when you get sick and you feel it in your bones or when you're spending time with people that you've really become close to and you're seeing how their life is becoming a struggle every year is a little harder than the previous year, it really made me pay attention and realize that this surfing vehicle that I had that was helping me, I guess, develop an education and a knowledge base experientially around the world, it was just the right thing to try and do something to help. And so that started for me by starting a group called Surfers for Cetaceans. Cetacean is the whale, dolphin, porpoise family. And I started that group with a great friend, Howie Cook, who's a lifelong animal rights activist and artist. And we did that because our friends in Japan at that time did not know that if they were consuming cetacean meat, so dolphin and whale meat that was being collected in their local waters, that it was full of mercury and other heavy metals and poisons. And for some reason, we knew more about that in Australia and other parts of the world than those friends in Japan knew. And so I began working to expose that and, I guess, bring that information to the surfing community in Japan. And that's when the documentary filmmakers from the Ocean Preservation Society created the documentary The Cove, which won an Oscar and really blew the lid wide open. That form of hunting and that, I guess, bastardized form of dolphin and whale hunts there where Traditionally, yes, people had survived on consuming dolphin whale meat in Japan, but this type of driving the cetaceans into the cove and inhumanely killing them, the females, the young, the old males, and often just capturing them to sell them onto aquariums and various places, tanks around the world was really what was motivating those fishermen to do that. So it was always a, a tricky line to dance that one with that issue where we're talking about something that was a traditional cultural act, but it was no longer that. And that was the beginning of it all for me. When that started, that was just like a total direction in my life that was created. So sorry, that's a long-winded answer to your question, but that was that was the trajectory for me. No, I, I love it. I think it's so interesting to kind of find out how you got to where you are today because everybody grows up so differently and has such different experiences. But it is also, I think, having the awareness, like you just said, when you were returning to 
these same places over and over again and really noticing the changes that they were going through because of climate change and the impacts that it was having on the oceans and I think having the bravery to also stand up and kind of say this isn't right and we're really going to really strive for a change. I have a question for you because I find it's really difficult in many situations to kind of persuade people who have been or organizations who have been doing something for a very, very long time. And just like what you said then with the Japanese traditions of eating whale and also dolphins, how did you go about those conversations or kind of are there any, I don't know, strategies that you would recommend to others who are kind of going up against, I don't know, traditional systems and looking to really change it? Yeah, for me, um, my experience with that was uh, just asking questions and really trying to listen and also trying to feel into the space between words and put myself in the shoes of the other, whoever that might be. So, you know, in that instance in Japan, it would be speaking with Japanese surfers and then having the good fortune to speak to some elders who also didn't agree with the the nature of the hunts that these fishermen were doing at the time and that it wasn't what they had always done. It was this new industrialised version that was problematic. It was disrespectful to those creatures. It was very much just money-driven. For example, at that point in time, we're talking about the 2000s, like 2006, 7 and 8 was when I was there, a one dolphin, if it was killed and the meat was distributed, it was worth around a thousand dollars. Yet one dolphin that was captured alive and then basically tortured into training and performing tricks for shows was worth a hundred thousand dollars. So the motivator there was was obvious, and you could not honestly say that what was being done was a cultural practice and traditional practice so so that was one way to do it was just speaking and and actually listening more than anything to local people and then also putting ourselves in those fishermen's shoes and I've done that in different parts of the world like the Galapagos for example as well is a a location where I joined Sea Shepherd one year on their Steve Irwin vessel to pull in long lines that were aimed at sharks for um, shark finning within world heritage protected waters or in marine parks there in the Galapagos Islands and there we realized it was just local fishermen who were doing this and supplying a factory ship who, that was outside of the sanctuary zone um, with all these fins and they were doing so because there weren't many other options for feeding their families and the industrialization of fishing for fleets the industrialization of life in general was making life very difficult, especially in remote communities and making people's health terrible when you're just living off white flour, white sugar and soft drinks and all the things that are imported en masse to those sort of locations. So so for me, it was always really important to just put myself in the other person's shoes and go, okay, you can't demonise anyone. You can't say these are bad people. These are people who, if you sit down and have a cup of tea or you have a beer or whatever the equivalent is in that location or a sake if you're in Japan and you you honestly communicate with each other, it's it's very 
quick that you realize each other's humanity and how many things we have in common and how just those few things we don't have in common are situational. They're not inherent in our human nature. They're just the situation of life being hard and usually those options that, that we deem terrible or inhumane or whatever are just the only option for people at that point in time. So I've, I've always found that really helpful for me to really ask questions, put myself in the other person's shoes and and as quickly as possible humanise each other. And that goes the other way too, telling the, the other person about myself, telling them of my origins, um, speaking to them about my experiences of being so fortunate to travel the world and realise actually the stories that we are sharing right now aren't uncommon. They're the same stories that people are living throughout the Pacific, throughout the Indian, throughout the Atlantic Ocean. Now, I think it's some really, really great advice. And then kind of bringing it back to Australia, can you tell us a little bit about kind of the current state of Australia's marine ecosystems? Because I know that there's been a dramatic change over the last couple of years. Yeah, so I, I, <laughs> I don't have the most academic and cerebral of personalities so I'm not a very good factoid keeper my brain somehow doesn't latch onto that sort of information very well but experientially I feel that when we look at the state of Australia's coastlines and waters and species within those spaces there are areas where we can celebrate what has been achieved things like the great humpback whale migration there's recovered from a few hundred individuals on the East Coast to now in the tens of thousands, some people saying up to 40,000 individuals. That is an amazing story. Though in the same breath, you, we look at those animals and there are many health issues that those whales have already and will be facing when we think about what it is they feed on and the kind of ocean they swim within. So when we look at the southern part of Australia, as whales pass through the southern areas, say Bass Strait past Tasmania, we're looking at things like seismic testing, we're looking at gas oil exploration, just desperately wanting to expand. There's something like 5.5 million hectares of ocean territory that a corporation, TGS, is aiming to seismic blast and look for, I guess, oil and gas to extract in those regions. And you can only imagine if you're a whale or any kind of ocean creature that lives in that space that has such a sensitivity with their nervous systems, with their systems of communication and hearing and communicating with each other, that kind of noise pollution is so disturbing, so disruptive. Uh, then if we go a little smaller in the scale of things and we look at crustaceans, we look at fisheries industries that rely on crab and cray and whatnot, They're, they are freaking out right now about seismic testing expanding because anytime this has been done in that part of the world, in any part of the world, it's that area of aquatic life that suffers hugely and then therefore that industry, that fisheries, that community and culture that relies upon that also suffers. So there's a lot of alarm bells ringing right now on the southern end of Australia. We can celebrate that if a couple of years ago there was the big oil potential for 
Equinor from Norway to also explore to extract oil out of the Great Australian Bight. We saw the Fight for the Bight campaign, which had something like 60,000 plus surfers and water people paddle out in protest and protection to try and stop that from happening in the Great Australian Bight. That company did pull out, um, which was a great win. So there's a, there's something to celebrate there. And so I think there's there's always this type of back and forth where we're seeing things that we should celebrate and learn from, like Fight for the Bite, and things that we should be definitely on the front foot with. And right now that is that seismic testing, that kind of intention to deeply disrupt that southern part of Australia. Uh, we also have just marine protected areas um, that were reeled right back a handful of years ago. We were a leader in the realm of marine protected areas here in Australia. We had 3 million square kilometres of protected ocean um, that was reeled back. I think it was 2017, maybe 18, with Abbott, where they reeled um, 1 million square kilometres back so that there was more access for industry and extraction, and that's definitely not a positive. So we've got work to do in reinstating that fantastic level of protection that we used to have for our waters. Yeah, so, you know, and then you've got other things, like we zoom right in, say, in Sydney, where you are, for example, Lottie, there's amazing stories of Sydney's water quality being so much better than it used to be, that there are uh, seaweeds and um, species rebounding because of that healthier system there along your shorelines and with your harbour and, and great groups of people indigenous and and white australia joining together in that area to work together and repair country and heal that place so there's a lot to focus on and i think depending where we are there is probably cause for celebration in the small wins the regeneration of various areas and there's also cause for concern and and a need to be active and pursuing our rightful role as custodians and carers for this place. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. No, I couldn't agree more. And I think it's such some really interesting points that you raised there as well. One of the things that I really liked in particular is kind of like putting yourself in the shoes of the animals and kind of what are they feeling? How are they going? What does their habitat and their surroundings look like? And how are they changing as well? I think is something that is really important to do as well. So you are a part of the Protect Australia's Ocean for Good tour, which is a really amazing and quite significant initiative. For our listeners who haven't heard about it just yet, what is the inspiration and kind of your goals behind this tour? Because I think you've touched on kind of a bit of it today about the protection of Australia's oceans. But kind of, Leah, talk to me a little bit more about the tour. Okay, great. Thanks, Lottie. The The tour is it's really just an excuse to talk about being in the water and the state of our waters um, when we're not 
in the water. So it's like the next, <laughs> next best, best thing to surfing or diving or being in the ocean is talking about it. And it can be <laughs> a bit repetitive and boring for those of us <laughs> who have to listen to, to surf talk or dive talk or fishing talk. But there are a lot of great stories, actually, and a lot of great people who are working to care for country in different parts of Australia. And and so, yeah, these stops are aimed at deepening that local understanding, that deepening that that belonging you feel. And so you're in Sydney. So, you know, when we come to Sydney and we're speaking, I think it's the 9th of November, at the Harvard Hotel in Freshwater in Gurungai country, we'll be talking about how your beaches, how your waters, how your people, how the fish, how the migrating whales, how the, the um, seaweeds, the crayweeds, everything that's there that we are beside and a part of, how it's doing and how we can better the situation, how we can give to that which gives us so much and actually write the relationships. So, you know, at the heart of these stops is listening to First Nations stewardship and listening to how this place has been cared for for so long in such a mutual way that humans and everything else flourish. And so especially right now, considering what we all just went through with the voice and a lack of listening or a divisiveness, it feels even more important right now that we reach out to each other in our communities, in these coastal communities, especially where we, where we live, and we ask for, I guess, a relationship to be established that is respectful and that is actually honouring of the knowledge and wisdom and systems that we are in such desperate need of right now. We see us going, you know, popular culture right now goes to the ocean and thinks of it simply as a one-way gift, as a thing that we go and we, oh, we get, we get relaxation, we get a relief, we get the therapy of slipping under the waves and diving into the water. We we feel the blue mind take over when we look out over that ocean and the sparkling water and the, the clear horizon. And that, that's all good and well, but we are still looking, and surfers are really guilty of this, we're still looking at our relationship in a very much linear, one-way type of perspective. And so I feel what we are going to be doing with these nights is speaking about how to write that relationship, how to understand that Gifts are never just given freely. When we give a gift or when we receive a gift, we understand that, oh, I'm going to give a gift to this person at some stage. And that's right relationship. You think of each other, you know, when you think of Christmas, if someone gave you a gift and you didn't give them one back, we usually feel pretty shitty about that. And I think our relationship with the ocean is very much that way if we have the European industrialist point of view and so I'm looking forward to these nights where we're speaking with Bunalori say down in um, Melbourne who's a mourning man or we're speaking with Mick Laurie who's from up our way and 
And we're really going to listen to story and listen to how we can move together forward in a way that heals our relationships with each other and our relationships with country. Uh, So those nights will be a mix of those kind of conversations, art and music and film. We've just spent some time on Lord Howe looking at how it looks and feels when a place gets it right, when a place is protected and generations of people have grown into a culture that loves country and looks after it. Uh, So there's a short film on that, which will be screening as well. Sounds like so much fun. And I think that kind of the whole thing that I think or the pin that holds everything together is connection. It's connection with one another. It's connection with the ocean. And I think it's the ocean's connection back with us as well. How do you envision the future of ocean conservation in Australia? I know we've got a very long way to go, but what role do you think that it could play or it should play on the global stage in protecting these marine ecosystems? Well, yeah, part of the protecting our oceans events is calling on the Australian government to restore, you know, full protection of the Coral Sea Marine Park and and to catch up to the 30% of Australia's oceans by 2030 being protected, uh, which is a global movement, which is fantastic. Those are, I guess, big picture ideas in terms of governance and things that can be enforced when we're looking out to sea and realising it's a big, wide ocean out there. Uh, and then I really like to zoom in locally and the localization of our efforts, you know, I'm sure you can relate to that feeling that there there are so many issues on the planet right now. There are so many relationships that are in turmoil between humans and land and the species that share this planet with us. So I feel that a localization where we actually go, all right, there's so much going on in the world, but what can I do here where I actually understand to a degree our river system. I know where our water catchment is. I understand what's happening when rain falls and say the water out of our Richmond River here in the Ballina Byron region is unhealthy because we have mass agricultural industry along that river spraying and losing topsoil into the river every year. I know to a degree what's happening in my local area, but I would sure love to deepen that relationship. And so I think that kind of localizing our perspectives and our actions is a way to cope as well. It gives us something tangible. I feel the climate change phrase is so big and somewhat vague that it doesn't really give us something to latch onto and a course of action that feels tangible and something that we could cope with if we were to get our teeth sunk into. So I really feel that, yeah, river systems, water catchment health in your local area, um, fisheries, where is the fish that people are consuming in your area coming from? Is it local? Is it from somewhere else? Should you even be eating it if you don't live near the ocean? Localising our diets and localising our knowledge. And so I think, I think for me that's a way of coping and that's a way for me to actually deal with the inherent challenges of this sort of work where I I easily get overwhelmed if I look at the big picture for too long. 
it helps me to look at the bigger picture and understand, oh, perhaps people have dealt with this same issue in other parts of the world and we, we don't have to keep reinventing the wheel with our activism, but but it certainly is far more healthier for me to really focus locally. Yes. Uh, what is that saying? Act locally, think globally. I think that's one of my favourite things just to kind of remember because it can be very overwhelming, especially when you're in this field and you're loaded with the statistics and the reality of what's going on all the time. How do you navigate that? Like, Have you got a way to be aware of that bigger story and also yeah, enact locally or cope with that? Yeah, well, it's really hard. I actually find it really inspiring in the work that I'm doing because I get to speak speak to people like yourself most days. So I'm kind of surrounded by these people who are out there. They've dedicated their lives to changing the planet and really working towards a better future. So I find that really inspiring and really exciting. But I think if I do kind of get overwhelmed or feel stressed out by exactly what's going on, it really comes down for me is kind of what is in my control and what changes can I make that are going to make the most significant impact because it's easy to focus and get frustrated with everything that's out of your control and everything else that people are doing and I kind of sometimes just go but what can I do how can I change and that's some things that help me deal with it all yeah great I've really found that a way to I guess feel a deep sense of belonging and being somewhere is to switch things off and go for a walk and preferably go be somewhere where you can sit and bird as bird watchers call it your sit spot having a sit spot where you can uh, regularly observe the world you're inhabiting there and be still and quiet enough to tune into the space that you're breathing in and a part of. And then, of course, for me as a water person, my sit spot is out in the lineup among waves in that world that's between worlds. It's not the land. It's not the deep ocean. We're right on that vibrant edge. And, and right now, where you are, Lottie, in Sydney, if you were to do that in that space, you go to your beach, you swim out or paddle out past the breaking waves and all their noise and turbulence and you stick your head underwater, you will be listening directly into your ear canals to the great migration of humpback whales singing to each other. And you can dive down and listen to this right now if you're in Sydney and you're listening when this turns off. Throw your swimmers on or your boardies on or whatever and, and go out and listen to what's happening there and you'll never forget it. It's the most incredible experience. And I feel that here in Australia, being such a coastal nation on the edge of so much life and so many incredible stories in the water, there are so many versions of that sort of awe and wonder you can feel. And right now that happens to be the, the humpback migration and, and their song that will touch you in ways that we don't even have words to describe. You know, it's always funny to me when you pop up from from listening to the humpback song or say you're you're out in a boat and you have a, a hydrophone that you can listen to the song through the, the technology that we have available now that when that happens you know people just their voices raise a few octaves <laughs> we start sounding like we've sucked on a helium balloon and 
we just talk at each other very, very quickly and nonsensically and we, we make no sense at all. And it is so wonderful to see people in that state of joyful awe and wonder. And, and what comes from that is what great activists have always said that first we have to love that which we want to protect. And to me, that is a moment of love. It's a moment where you're falling in love with where you live. You're in complete awe. Words are too small. Just like when you find the partner in your life and you have these huge feelings that words can't possibly wrap up. When we are in right relationship with the world we inhabit, that's exactly how it feels. You, you just you don't have the words you just have the feelings and of course the next feeling you have once you've had that lit up or inspired moment is for the welfare of that other that one that you have fallen in love with and i think that that can't be underestimated i know it's not an academic it's not a cerebral tangible thing to tell people to do right now in terms of their activism or being a custodian but but it's foundational. It's it's at the very centre of it, and it'll what it's what will keep you going when we have to deal with the challenges that are on the path of healing a place or a people or a species or regenerating a space. And you inevitably get tired, and you inevitably inevitably feel a little beat up. It's that kind of moment where you can close your eyes and be back with that feeling of love and awe and wonder and that'll keep you buoyant even when everything is trying to sink you down. Very, very wise words. I'm definitely an ocean baby. I'm in the water every single day and it just <laughs> really keeps me centred and I love it. So I still remember the first time where I did just that. I went under the water and I equalised and then I could hear the whales. And you're right, the pitch of your voice definitely increases. <laughs> but it's also just... Anyway, but you just can't describe it to anybody else. You're so right there. I love it. So it is amazing advice. And this has been so lovely to chat with you and to kind of find out more about your journey and all of the amazing work that you're doing. So thank you so much. Mm, pleasure. Pleasure. They're exciting times and, and good on you for for doing what you're doing. I feel that there's people like yourself and myself in every little community, you know, we've been brought up to think of ourselves as unique individuals, one of a kind and all that kind of stuff. But I don't think that's a very healthy point of view of ourselves. I think it's a wonderful feeling when we feel kinship with each other and, and you realise, oh, actually, there are there are many things we have in common with each other and many wonderful things to share and to celebrate and to skill share. And so I hope yeah, people come along to these events that we're putting on and get to listen to others in your community that are, are lit up and doing something with that light. Exactly. And then they can connect with other thalassophiles as well, which is what we love. <laughs> Fantastic. <laughs> catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row dreaming of something better well hello fresh is your guilt-free dream come true baby it's me geeky palmer 
Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm. 